Who do you think couldn't possibly get into heaven? Good evening. <laughs> I'm Mark Biles. I'm the innkeeper slash narrator. You might have seen me in the, in the nativity. Husband to Holly, who is swapped with me. I'm not usually allowed out for the six, as you may have noticed. Holly's looking after Evelyn and Reuben tonight, so I get to be here. And we get to talk about heaven and hell. Lucky me. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at big questions. And my thanks goes particularly to Patrick for giving this one to me for just my second preach here at HTC. So, trigger warnings first, then. We're going to be dealing with some big topics in this message. We're going to be dealing with death, suffering, eternity, justice, goodness, our final moments on earth, and ancient Greek. As we explore together, we will recognize how culture has affected our view on heaven and hell compared to what the Bible says. So before we start, what do you think heaven and hell are like? As we start this talk, let's be frank with one another. The Bible does not give us a clear picture of what heaven and hell look like or will be like in absolute terms. But there is a lot that it does tell us. So given most of our preferences for hearing the bad news before the good news, why don't you put on some sunscreen because we're going to start with hell. What is it? Well, as any true millennial would, what better place to start than the ironic punishment division of 1993, which is, of course, Treehouse of Horror 4 from The Simpsons. Homer loves donuts. And in this episode, he sells his soul for a donut, and after accidentally finishing it, has to spend a day in hell awaiting trial. He loves donuts, so his ironic punishment is eating all the donuts in the world. The joke is, that's not much of a problem for Homer. The modern view that hell is a place where the souls of the damned are ironically tormented for eternity is common. It has delighted the minds and pens of authors and scriptwriters for generations because it provides ample creative material for storytelling. It also provides satisfying judgment and punishment for literature's greatest villains. You may be familiar with Dante's Inferno, a classic example, or from ancient Greek mythology, the god Narcissus, who is narcissistically captured by his own reflection. The idea is that the thing you want most will be used against you to punish you eternally in hell. And it's usually the place where Satan rules. You may find yourself there if you die and did more bad things than good things, or you sell your soul, like Homer, to the devil. What does the Bible say? Well, how much of our cultural depiction of hell is in the Bible? Some, some, but not a lot. Let's have a look at what it says and doesn't say, and here is your warning. Here comes the Greek. So there are four different words for hell used in the Bible. One of them is Aramaic, called Sheol, and three of them are Greek. You've got Gehenna, you've got Hades, and you've got Tartaro. And we're going to look at these words. And the reason we're going to look at them is once we know what the different words mean, it will help us understand biblical hell better. So Sheol, starting with Sheol. Sheol is the underworld. In Sheol, you have left earth, 
but you're still within a state of existence and within God's reach. It was not understood to be a place of punishment, but just the ultimate resting place for all of humans. An example is in Psalm 16. The verse goes, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to Sheol. Translated, the realm of the dead. Gehenna, first interesting Greek one to look at, is a valley around Jerusalem. It was a place of pagan worship to the Ammonite god Molech. And the way that he was worshipped, this god, was predominantly involving child sacrifice. There was a biblical king called Josiah who went and laid waste to that valley to sort of purge the evil was there. And it was turned into a permanently burning city rubbish dump, this valley called Gehenna. This word is used almost exclusively by Jesus, apart from one other reference from James. And the example is Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Translated hell. Hades is the Greek word for Sheol, so we won't dwell too much on that. And Tartaro is only found once in 2 Peter and refers to the deepest part of hell reserved for Satan and his angels. Those are the places. Key question then, first of all, for us is when we're talking about hell, which one are we talking about? Because they're all different. There is a very clear distinction in the Bible between pre-judgment existence in Hades slash Sheol, realm of the dead, and Gehenna slash Tartaro, which is hell post-judgment. I'm going to stick with Greek words now as we consider a map. A map. <laughs> the biblical understanding, thank you so much, Joel. Uh, the biblical understanding of what happens when you die, I'm going to take you on this very sensitive process chart, okay? You're going to die, and then your soul will depart from your earthly body and inhabit Hades, I've kind of given it like a fence, it's kind of like a waiting area. In Hades, you don't have an earthly body, nor do you have a resurrected body. The details are kind of murky about what it will be like, but you will neither be sitting in eternal fiery torment looking up or on a cloud looking down. You can see on the map that Gehenna, and you can just about see that Tartaro, are both locked until judgment, as is heaven, but we'll get to heaven later. A quick word on the devil. He, Gehenna is locked. So Satan isn't in Gehenna. He's unfortunately on earth with us. But he doesn't rule anything. Thankfully, Jesus made sure of that. So we've talked about what the Bible says hell is. But what is it like? And how do we get there? What does the authority of authorities Jesus say about Gehenna? Well, he's pretty clear that he does not want you to go there. He uses drastic and hyperbolic language to explain just how much he doesn't want you to go there. He says it's better to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye than go there. He calls the Pharisees, the teachers of the law who are proclaiming this strict moral life but with inner lives of hypocrisy and evil as being sons of Gehenna. Sinful behavior, pride, lust, envy, and in the book of James, the use of our tongue to spread evil are all described as being characteristics of Gehenna, with willful displaying of such characteristics, causing us to be thrown into Gehenna after judgment. The other key word to describe Gehenna, and this is a final Greek word, apologies again, is the Greek word kalasis. 
This is the word that we heard in the parable of the sheep and the goats after the word eternal in Matthew 25. Some translations portray this phrase as the goats being sent to eternal punishment. And that's indeed what we read in this translation. And so out come the medieval pitchforks, the torture racks, and ironic punishments in our minds. But is that a true understanding of the punishment that Jesus means? The word is a complex one. And so sound the unclear klaxon. This is an unclear bit in the Bible. The one other time that same word, kalasis, is used is in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to give you the Mark Biles paraphrase version of the Bible here because there's quite a lot to take in. But this is talking about how we will feel at Judgment Day. And to paraphrase, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. There is no fear in love, jumping down. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with kalasis, translated punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Kalasis is understood as the real-life, immediate consequence of sin. Quintessential image, you're playing football, kick a ball, through a window, crash. Immediate feeling of, ugh. Or, park too long at Claygate Station, or on a double yellow line, you come back, yellow ticket, immediate feeling, ugh. It's this recognition of cost. It's, a, it's linked to fear, the fear that a wrong has been committed and that judgment must be served. When we sin, it has an effect on us. It erodes our relationships and ultimately ourselves. I think the deadliest sins for us today are those that we think are victimless. The more we do them, the more desensitized we become to them. The more you park on a double yellow line and don't get a ticket, the more you'll do it, the less you'll fear the punishment. The more times you do not experience the consequences of your sinful actions or try to avoid them, the less you will care about the consequence and the more self-righteous, the more justified you will feel in your behavior. There are two tickets to ride to end up in Gehenna. The first one is for those who reject the need for grace because they don't think what they're doing is wrong. They don't accept that there is a God or that they need grace and instead have persisted in sinning. Those people will face Colossus. Matthew 25 says they will be led to the consequence of their sins because they'll just keep on doing them. They choose justice and the sentence is choosing to remove themselves from the presence of God. And ticket number two is for those who reject the need for grace because they don't think they need it. They also persist in sinning, but say things like, but look at all the good I've done. I tip the scales into the positive. God, you should have done more. I deserve to make the judgment call. I demand that you give me my rightful place. Those people want to be God. They fail to understand that grace cannot be earned and that God's standard is perfection. Their self-righteousness and pride ultimately cause them to be thrown into Gehenna, thrown into facing the unerasable consequence of their sins without the shield of Jesus. They also choose justice, and God actively delivers this sentence, which is removing them from his presence. 
this is a hard doctrine, which teaches us that our earthly lives have eternal significance. How can anything justify eternal calasis, you may ask? How can a good God send people to Gehenna? Whilst it's possible, I think, to think of all kinds of interesting philosophical arguments about this, I think the, the understanding of Colossus is essential. The real-life consequences of sin. Some things we do, we cannot make full amends for in life. We can either deny that this matters, like the first kind of people, or protest our mitigating circumstances, the second kind. But the benchmark of heaven is perfect, holy righteousness. There are no qualifying, mitigating circumstances. Murder and war, without meaning to be crass, can kind of seem sort of over there to us. It can seem, well, we're not murderers, so we don't fall into this camp. It will not be possible, obviously, to make satisfactory amends for those who lose their lives, not to the victims of war, nor those that survive it. But there are less obvious versions. I've already mentioned I'm a father to two wonderful children who I love dearly. But I will, and have, made mistakes as a father. There are things that I've said, and things that I've done, that I regret, and that will cause my children not to have a perfect life. I can't go back in time and change these things. And as a consequence, my children have no choice but to be subjected to me as a father. They didn't choose me, but they have me. There are good bits to mind. Being cast as Mary in the nativity written by your dad, not so bad. But there are bad things too, and you may be able to think of your own examples. Who do you think couldn't possibly get into heaven? God's essential perfect justice means that our sins will be punished as they deserve. Those who perpetrate atrocities that are irredeemable will receive a proportionate response and justice will be served. We need a Gehenna for justice to be served. The bad news is that all of us Every single one of us should not get into heaven. We should reflect that we cannot possibly imagine that anyone in this room deserves to get into heaven, on no matter how Christian our behaviors are. But the good news is that there was a plan for justice and a plan for mercy. Justice has already been done on the back and shoulders of Jesus Christ, who freely and permanently paid the price for all of our sin and shame for all eternity. So dust off your harps, put on your after sun, because we're going to heaven. What does culture say heaven is? It tells us that it's full of rest, full of pleasure, relaxation, everything you've always wanted on earth but couldn't have, Infinitely. Only the good get there. There are no bad people. Who judges? You do. You're the judge in secular society. Heaven in Western modern culture makes no sense. The quite excellent drama, The Good Place, says you get to the good place if you get a net positive score 
That is, your good actions outweigh your bad. For example, fail to disclose a camel illness while selling a camel, minus 22 points. Remember your sister's birthday, plus 15 points. They've got a score for everything. You get the idea. What does the Bible say? Well, the good news here is that there are only two words to remember, and they basically mean the same thing. We should have, hopefully, a map coming back. We've got Shorme and Uranos, and they both are used interchangeably between describing the sky, the heavens, the universe, the highest of highs, the ultimate dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit comes from Uranos at Pentecost, and Jesus will return from Uranos at the end of all things. This is where we get the kind of God's an old man in the sky thing from. Because everything is used interchangeably when describing heavens, the idea is you look up into the sky, you look up into heaven, eventually you'll see God up there. It's not literal. He's not in the sky. But it is locked. That's where God and his angels dwell. It's not a place for humans. The Bible teaches us that heaven remains God's place until post-judgment, but that it will be the final destination for those with saving faith. In Jesus. So, how do we get to heaven? Wrong question. Amazingly, look at the map. Heaven comes to us, unlike any other faith. Let's cut straight to the chase. How do we get there? Who remembers reading Ephesians? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Boom. Done. Good place is wrong. You can't earn your way to heaven. The misplaced modern Western view is that heaven is a prize to be won. Instead, it is a gift to be received. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Unlike other faiths, we will not leave this world behind. The very planet we live in will be renewed. Lions will lay down with lambs in the new earth. Creatures and people will be there. It's not pie in the sky when you die. We are not given carte blanche to just in this life trash our planet because we will have this misguided view that we will go to paradise somewhere else. We should protect our planet and minimize the damage done to it knowing that the price of our sin is paid for by Jesus. And finally, what will it be like? Well, sound the unclear klaxons. It's unclear. Jesus talks about preparing a place for us in the many mansions in his father's house. It's sometimes described as a feast or a banquet. It's described as our inheritance, prepared for us since the creation of the world. It will, however, we know, be a place of outrageous, endless, beautiful grace. God is perfect and lacks nothing. He was perfect before creation. He didn't need to make us. The act of creation was an act of grace for us. Us messy, sinful, broken, yet beautiful people get the source of holiness, goodness, and light for all eternity. He will move amongst us in the new heavens and the new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. Every wrong will be made right. Every sad, painful hurt and rejection that we face on earth will be inconsequential compared to being in his presence forever. And in so doing, we will not merely be compensated, 
for the bad things that have happened to us in this short earthly life. Bad things that might have happened either because of our own choices or the choices of others. Compared to being with the source of goodness, love, and light for all eternity, those painful things will be redeemed a million times over. And as eternity runs and runs, it will be like they never happened. Wouldn't that be a nice way to end the sermon? Well, critical analysis time. Can anybody see any problems and risks with the biblical understanding of heaven? Can anyone see any risks with the idea that us in this room, we believers, got it made, haven't we? We've got that free gift. We've crossed the threshold. We're saved. We're sorted. Those people out there, they're not sorted. It's a view that could say, I know where I'm going, and I know where they're going. I know who the sheep are, and I know who the goats are. For us, we come to church at least. We sing the songs, we pray. Sure, maybe we like too much to drink sometimes, and maybe we spent our lunch break dissecting the behavior of a colleague in our office and had a good laugh about it afterwards. Sure, when it comes to confession, I seem to be asking for forgiveness for the same old sins. But at least I know I'm going to heaven. What kind of people does that sound like? Well, to me, it sounds exactly like the second kind of people who, through a misplaced sense of their own self-righteousness, are thrown into Gehenna. We have got so much in Claygate. Did you know that there are 12,382 parishes in the UK? And they're all ranked from 1 to 12,382 on a scale of deprivation. Who would like to guess, or I should say it out loud, who would like to guess where Claygate sits on that list? We are number, out of 12,382, we are number 12,155. We're in the top 250 of the wealthiest, most affluent parishes in all of the UK. With having so much, we can easily get complacent, and we have to be careful, don't we, of the dreaded smugness, a smug salvation. Not one of us here deserves heaven. Not one of us is good enough. I'm not good enough, and neither are you. And so we cry out to our Lord and Savior, all hail King Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Who do you think couldn't possibly get into heaven? Them, they, the other, people who have done bad things, Weinstein, Savile, Huntley, Hitler, our family members and loved ones perhaps who do not profess to believe, maybe most painfully our loved ones and family members, and I can speak from my own experience, who have recently died, who were maybe too ill physically or mentally to proclaim aloud to us saving faith. Three very short final thoughts to leave you with in closing. Grace is outrageously offensive. The truth of this is neatly contained in the verse of the hymn, To God Be the Glory. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Grace is the free gift for all. No one is beyond his reach. 
take the gift of grace now and experience a full life, richly full of joy, but knowing what it costs for you to have that freedom. Don't wait. Number two, we are not in the judgment seat. We do not decide who the sheep and the goats are. We can never truly know what goes on in one another's final moments before death and with God. God is merciful and gracious and oh so gentle. For those loved ones of ours that may have recently died, those who who we don't know whether they had a saving faith or not, we are not in the judgment seat. We don't know their final destination for sure, but we can hope, we can live in hope and pray that we see them in the book of life. And finally, seek ye first the kingdom. We can, we can be confident that we will be with the sheep on judgment day. We can be confident in our salvation. We can be confident that we feel that we need not fear hell nor Colossus. But it's not a smug salvation that says we're sorted. It's one that hates the sin that persists in us. It's a salvation that's built on tears. Tears of sorrow and tears of thankfulness. Tears of sorrow for knowing the depths of what we need forgiveness for. And yet tears of thankfulness that but for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we deserve nothing else but the righteous consequence of our sins. Who do you think couldn't possibly get to heaven? It shouldn't be any of us. But thanks to Jesus, the way was made for all of us.